<clears throat> you want to turn in your Bible to Psalm 34. Thank you, girls, for the music today. Thank you, Sister Terry, for going and picking up those donuts yesterday. Sure. Thank you, Peter, for stopping by Starbucks and picking up that coffee. I do appreciate everything that you guys have done, but I said those thank yous for a very specific purpose this morning. When I said thank you to you, something inside of you just brought a smile to your face. Because we appreciate being appreciated. A simple thank you means something to us. And I want you to take that feeling you thought and understand that our God feels the same way when we acknowledge him. A couple years ago, on a whim, I decided as I was reading through my Bible, and I don't, I don't do this anymore because I kind of forgot about it, but I think about it on occasion. But as, as I read through my Bible and I read a story about God flexing his muscles or him doing something amazing, I would set my Bible down and I would get up and I would start dancing and thanking him for the victory that he had in that particular Bible story or thanking him for the miracles that he performed and glorifying him for what he's done. He created the entire universe, set this entire universe into motion, and, and we are to glorify him for what he's done. So any time in your life that you think of something he's done, just breathe a thank you. Just bring a God, you're so good. Sometimes I'm driving down the road and I just under my breath, or even out loud, say, God, you're amazing. Thank you, God. And just recognize him for what he does and give him some glory. As I'm going through my message today, which is very much centered around magnifying the Lord, if something quickens inside of you and you feel like, oh, I appreciate you, God, don't be afraid to speak it out. We're in church. We're in an apostolic church. That's how we do it. If you want to jump to your feet and start running laps, Sister Terry, go for it. We are going to magnify God because that's what we do with our lives as Christians. We're going to read Psalms 34, if everybody's there, and we're going to read the entire chapter, but we're going to take it verse by verse. I'll take a verse, Sister Terry will take a verse, Peter will take a verse, Mel will take a verse, then I'll take the next one after that, and Sister Keyboard will keep keying away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Amen. They looked unto him and were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed. The poor cried, and the Lord heard them, heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. Thank you, Lord. Yes, Jesus. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, I like that verse. You can try it and see that God is good. You don't have to just take it all by blind faith. We don't walk by blindness. But the more we get into his word, the more we go to his church, 
the more that we pray, the more we get an understanding, a taste, and see that he is good. Starting in verse 9 again, Oh, fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Keep the tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are broken that are of a broken heart, and save us such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him, delivers him out of them all. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. The Lord redeem the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. Amen. That is the end of that chapter. Verse, verse 3, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Let's do that right now. Let's exalt his name together. Lord Jesus, we give all glory and all honor and all praise to your name. Lord, we thank you for who you are and what you do for us. God, you are the creator of the universe. You are our deliverer. You are our salvation. You are holy and there is none like you. And we just want to take this moment, Lord, and acknowledge who you are. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. This is becoming one of my favorite scriptures because it is such a clear, concise coverage and all-encompassing that in the beginning, God created everything. He created the heaven. He created the earth. Everything that is in the earth was created by God. We, in our short little lifespan of anywhere between 50, 60 to 100 years, think that we maybe have something figured out. But God is all eternal, and he has designed it all and put it all into place. He sees the big picture. You look at Genesis 1.31. This is the end of Genesis chapter 1. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Everything that God does is very good. God made it perfect, and then man messed it up. We're all familiar with these stories. That God sets the perfect plan into motion. Man doesn't have to do any work. You, know, you, you, look, at, you look at the animals out in nature, and they just live in the life. They have all the food they need, go sleep wherever they want, take naps whenever they want go hang out in the sun, go hang out in the shade till they find the right temperature they need. They don't have a care in the world. And that was God's original creation for man. That, that we would be able to just hang out in his beautiful world, but then man messed it up. We have an all-knowing God. And so when he comes to the garden in Genesis 3, 8 through 9, and Adam, Adam, 
It says, And they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said, Where are you? God knew what man had done. Man had offended God and God knew it, but God still reached out to him. God's love for us transcends any offense that we can do to him. Man messed it up, but God didn't turn his back on man. Then you look at the story of Cain and Abel. They were offering sacrifices unto God. Cain was bringing the sacrifice, Abel was bringing the sacrifice that God had asked for, and, and Cain was bringing him vegetables. And if that doesn't say that, that um, somebody asks for steak and you bring them vegetables, they're going to be upset. I don't know what does. But God had asked for an animal sacrifice, and Cain's bringing them the fruits of, of, his, of his fruits and vegetables. And that's not what God wanted, and God was displeased. And Cain gets mad at his brother and kills his brother. And again, you see a murder, which was an offense to God. And God then approaches Cain and says, why did you do that? And God says to Cain, behold, thou, or Cain says behold, to God, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from the face shall I be hid. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And it shall come to pass that everyone that find me shall slay me. Cain's acknowledging that he has offended God and isn't worthy of life. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Cain understood that he messed up and offended God and deserved death. The wages of sin is death. When you sin and offend God and separate yourself from God's perfect plan, it is deadly. But God says to Cain, if somebody touches you, if somebody kills you, vengeance will be taken upon him. Despite what Cain had done, God didn't want him killed. That is an image of God's perfect love through man's ignorance. Genesis 6, 5 through 8. This is getting into the story of Noah. And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination and thoughts in his heart were only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the earth, for it repenteth me that I have made man. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God didn't want, God didn't want to, God wanted to save man, but man had turned their back on God so hard. I, I call this the big reboot. God tried turning it off and back on again. He wipes the earth out and says, we're going to start over again. But God still desired a relationship with man. God was still reaching out for man. God established a promise with Abraham. Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land which I will show you. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. 
And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families on earth be blessed. This was a promise that God made to Abraham. That anybody who blesses Abraham's people will be blessed. Anybody who curses Abraham's people will be cursed. He also says that he's going to make Abraham a great nation. And that everybody's great. What's he say there? He says, I will... Make thee a great nation, I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. So God prophesied or told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that I am going to make thee a great nation, and your name will be great. I don't know that there's a soul on earth today that doesn't know who Abraham was, because God promised the entire world would know who Abraham was. We all know where Abraham's land is. We all know who Abraham's descendants are. That is the order of our God. That is him fulfilling his promise to Abraham. You look through history. The countries that have blessed Israel have been blessed. And the countries that have turned their back on Israel are nothing but turmoil. You look at a map of the Middle East... You've got all of this land under Palestine's control, and you've got this little dot, little area, where the, where the Israelis live. And somehow they can survive everything that gets thrown at them. They have made themselves a great nation. Joseph and his family couple generations down, they moved to Egypt. But God had promised them a different land. They all end up walking away from God's promised land, and they all end up in Egypt. They go into slavery. They get out of slavery, wander on the wilderness for 40 years. And in Joshua 1 through, or Joshua 1, 3, it says, Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you as I said unto Moses. So they spend all this time wandering around the, in Egypt and wandering around the wilderness, and God brings them back to the land that was promised to them. On Mount Sinai, God established a theocracy, a form of government that has God as the head. God wanted to lead the world. God wanted to be the headship of the government of the world. We call it the Mosaic Law or the Levitical Law, but that was God's way his organization, his governmental structure for leading the world. And man cries out for a human leader. He says, okay, we don't want to do this whole God thing anymore. We're always just following God and we're just trusting that the judges are rightly dividing his, his law. Give us a king. Give us a king. Give us something physical that we can lay our eyes on. It was very similar to what had happened when, the, uh, when Moses was up in Mount Sinai and the children of Israel, after just coming out of Egypt, they go, we want to see the God that brought us out. So they build a golden calf. As humans, we like to see something tangible. Something that we can't see is a little difficult for us to wrap our minds around. So the children of Israel now, they're asking for a human leader. Give us a king. And as you read through the story of the king, starting with King Saul and then David and then Solomon, you find that, that, they, that they start out serving God, 
Then they backslide. Life gets tough. And when life gets tough, everybody ends up on their knees crying out to God. They get things straightened back out again. Life's going good. Life's going good. They all forget they need God. They become self-centered, self-sufficient. They backslide. Life gets tough. They come back to God. Life gets good. They don't need God. They backslide. Life gets tough. Come back to God. Life gets good. They don't need God anymore. They backslide. It's been dubbed the roller coaster period because as you read through the kings, every three to four kings, they're serving God, serving idols, serving God, serving idols, serving God, serving idols. They go through this, this they keep looping this. They keep backsliding, they keep coming back, they keep backsliding, they keep coming back. But we know a God that cannot lie. Our God does not lie. And in Matthew 18, 21 and 22, Peter is asking Jesus. And Peter said to him, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? So Peter is saying, okay, Jesus, if my brother offends me, or a friend offends me, if somebody offends me, how many times do I really have to forgive him? He pokes me and says, oh, I'm sorry, I forgive you. And he does it again, and I'm sorry, and you forgive him. How many times? Seven times? Is seven times enough? After, after I say I forgive you seven times, can I just say I'm done with you? And Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. It's a little bit of a play on words. I don't really think that that was meant literally. But this is a metaphor for unconditional love and forgiveness. Love and forgiveness with no conditions. You don't say, I'll forgive them if. Nope. That's not how this goes. Or I'll love them until. Nope. It's not how this works. But it's unconditional love and forgiveness. And Jesus reflects an unconditional love and forgiveness to us. Let's all stand and the music can come back. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, For when we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. It doesn't say that Christ died for the godly. Christ died for the ungodly. And then he goes on to say, for scarcely would a righteous man would one die for. So, so hardly would you die for somebody who is righteous, somebody who's good to you. Like, like we love our friends, we love the people that love us, but would we really take a bullet for them? Like that's a whole nother level. So he's saying Christ died for the ungodly. And then he's saying we would hardly die for somebody who'd been good to us. And then we might die for somebody, you know, that, we, that we're an acquaintance for. But God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's love for us is not conditional on what we do for him. It doesn't matter how many times we walk away from him. He's still reaching for us and saying, I want to be your friend. And no matter what we do, no matter how many times we offend him, he's still reaches out to us. Acts 2, 38 and 39, Peter said to them, Repent 
and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. This was a promise from God. This promise is going out to all of us for the promise unto you and to your children all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. If we're waiting on God to call somebody, that means they haven't turned their life over to him yet. God is reaching for us even when we have our back turned to him. Acts 4, 10 through 12, Be it known unto you all and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth his name stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of the builders, which it became the head of the corner, became the cornerstone. Everything is built off the cornerstone. When the builders would start to build, they didn't have all our modern technology, and so they would find a stone, they'd find their original building block, and they'd put it in place and go, everything is based off of this. Every measurement we make is going to be measured off of this point, off of this cornerstone. This is, a, this, is, this is the bottom of the wall, this is the first brick of the wall. This is where we're starting from. Every measurement we take is gonna be based off of this to make sure that everything stays consistent. So Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Neither is there salvation any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We have that power in that name. Jesus is our chief cornerstone in our life. He died on that cross to pay the debt for our sins, to give us a reward that we didn't earn to show us his grace and his mercy. That is our God. I've gone through the Bible from the book of Genesis right up through the life of Christ right now through the epistles and we see a trend that no matter what man does, we cannot separate ourselves from the love of God. But at the end of the day, we still have to turn back to him and accept it. At the end of the day, we still have to submit ourselves to his hand. In Mark 6:17 it says, And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. In James 2:19 it says, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. The devils understand and tremble at the understanding of who God is. There is authority and there is power in the name of Jesus. Yes, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. We started a series through the fruit of the Spirit a couple weeks ago, and, and we've gotten a little off, not off track. We've been going down a little bit of a different road, but we're going to be getting back on track with our, at our next service. The fruit of the Spirit. This is a sign that Paul was telling the church in Galatia that this is a result of the Holy Ghost. This is a byproduct of the Holy Ghost. When somebody has the Holy Ghost working inside of them, this is, the, this is what they bear. This is the fruit they bear. He contrasts it with a couple of verses previous that says these are the works of the flesh. If you're living in the flesh, if you're pursuing the things of the flesh, these are the things that people do. But when people accept God, 
this is the fruit that they start to bear in their lives. When somebody receives the gift of the Holy Ghost and they allow the Holy Ghost to start cleaning them up from the inside out, the fruit of the Spirit is a fruit they start to bear in their lives. And the reason this fruit is what you bear when you have the Holy Ghost within you is because these are reflections of what the Holy Ghost is. And we know the Holy Ghost is the God, is God of the Old Testament. So as we look at these, understand that each and every one of these words is an attribute of God. Love. Our God is love. He is the embodiment of love. Joy. Our God, the King of the universe, the King of my life that I want to align my life with in everything that I do is joy. Peace. My God is the Prince of Peace. The God that I choose to align my life with, the God that I choose to have live in my life, the God that I'm trying to get a better understanding of, that I can do, make sure that I don't do things that separate me from Him because I want His peace in my life. Long-suffering is patiently enduring injury. That means suffering long, suffering for a long time. It means putting up with things. The world has all kinds of troubles and frustrations that it throws at us. But when we have the Holy Ghost working inside of us, we can put up with the nonsense the world throws at us. We can keep reminding ourselves who God is. And we know God's long-suffering because that's what we, pretty much what we looked at today. We looked at God's patience with man right from, the, right from Adam's sin in the garden to today. God puts up with us. It doesn't matter what we do. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Gentleness. God is gentle with us. When we have God in our heart, we become gentle people. Goodness. Faith. Faith is the evidence of things hoped, or the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. Faith is believing in something that we can't quite get tangible. But when we see what God does in our lives, and we see what God does in other people's lives, and we hear people's testimonies, it builds our faith. Meekness, humility, temperance is another form of patience. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. When we put ourselves in Christ, we have to crucify our flesh. We have to lay down our fleshly desires and accept what Christ wants to do in our lives. We're going to take some time to pray this morning. And we're going to thank God and we're going to magnify God and we're going to worship God for who he is. That's why we've come together in church today is for us to glorify the name of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are. God, I thank you for your never-ending love. God, I thank you for your unconditional love and mercy. God, I thank you that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. That there's nothing that I can do that separates me from your love. There's nothing I can do that brings me so far away from you that I can't come back. That you never turn your back and you never reject us until after we've rejected you. That you love me despite my humanity. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. 
Yes, Jesus.